So we're really uh, glad uh, to have uh, Kerti uh, with us uh, today. And just to explain a little bit about why, is that um, just to give him just a little bit of background. He, he got his uh, PhD in plant physiology from Imperial College in uh, uh, the UK uh, in 1981. Then, and he uh, started at uh, his whole, most of his career at Texas A&M as an assistant research scientist, all the way up to a professor. And uh, in his publications and in, um, what he says about himself, his work uh, goes uh, towards enhancement of disease resistance in plants, conferring drought, drought uh, tolerance to crop plants, conferring insect resistance to crop plants, improving nutritional quality of seeds, and production of recombinant antibodies and vaccines in plants. So he has done all sorts of things. And today he's just gonna to talk to us about two uh, aspects of his research, which are uh, really incredibly interesting to us. But one of the things in that is that he's really been working with cotton. That's his, his main crop. And that's one of these major um, crops in terms of interest of multinational corporations and everybody else. And so here he is, a university scientist getting into this issue. So in addition to talking to us about the technical aspects of what he's been doing, um, he will bring in uh, some of his experiences. And, and just to say that, you know, we invited him to this thing on disruptive biotechnologies because specifically the things he was working on really would change things. Um, you know, whether or not they would actually get out into the field and stuff was not our issue. It was like, if these things happened, and based on his work, it would be pretty interesting. So uh, with that, I'll turn it over to you, Kurt. Uh, thank you, Fred. Thanks for the introduction. <clears throat> and I would like to thank the organizers of the uh, GES Colloquium series uh, for this invitation. Uh, <clears throat> um, I wish I could do this on person, but uh, that's uh, not the case this time, but <clears throat> maybe some other time. Uh, now, let me uh, <clears throat> say something about cotton. In fact, uh, I did grow up in India. I've probably seen a cotton plant or two while I was growing up there, then went to England and then I was at Purdue University for quite some time uh, where I actually, uh, I didn't go to Purdue to do biotechnology, but uh, I was doing more of electrophysiology. And uh, um, it's, uh, it's around 1990 that I switched to biotechnology. Um, and there were many advances being made in biotechnology area. So I thought, you know, this is, this is what I would like to do, and I can make some impact uh, <clears throat> in the field of agriculture. So that's, and I started out working on rice at Purdue, uh, believe it or not. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, first time I ever saw cotton plants growing in the field is when I moved to Texas. So, so yeah, this is about 25 years ago. And so with that, I will uh, uh, dive right into the two projects that I'm going to talk about today, uh, because we don't have much time. I would much rather spend some time discussing uh, what, uh, you know, what my experience has been. 
So the first project would be, uh, and it's not quite complete yet, but we have some very, very promising results on this uh, project. And this has this deals with the PTXD gene uh, isolated from uh, bacteria, Pseudomonas terzieri, and uh, phosphite. And this project started as a collaboration between my lab and uh, a couple of scientists from Mexico, uh, Luis Herrera Estrella and Damar. Now they opened up a little company called Stella Genomics, and uh, and that's this was one of the kind of uh, basis for opening that company. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> now both of them are at Texas Tech University. So. Um, what is it all about? Well, we all know that plants can utilize or plants utilize phosphorus if it's given phosphorus in the form of phosphate or orthophosphate, PO4, uh, for nutrition. Now, if you supply phosphite to the plant, it certainly gets absorbed readily into the plant and it can move about throughout the plant easily. However, the plant cannot utilize that as a source of phosphorus. Uh, it cannot be metal, metabolized in the plant. So um, our collaborators showed, uh, I think it was uh, 2012, that uh, if you take this gene, uh, which we call PTXD gene from Pseudomonas terzieri, which was originally isolated by <coughs> uh, a scientist named Metcalf uh, at University of Illinois. Uh, he, they found that it, if this uh, enzyme, PTXD enzyme, can convert PO3 or phosphite to phosphate, and the reaction is shown right here in this picture. Uh, so once you uh, transfer this gene into plants, uh, they are now able to utilize phosphite as a source of phosphorus. Now we wanted to see if this uh, <coughs> PTXD phosphite system will work as a uh, system to select transgenic lines. And in our case, obviously it was cotton. Now, <coughs> these are some cells, uh, cotton tissue cultures that are uh, growing on phosphite or not growing on phosphite very well. Uh, uh, in this particular case, our uh, PTXD gene was also linked to GFP, so we could see the GFP expression and know that the tissue is nice, and alive, and growing well. So unlike antibiotics or herbicides, it, phosphite doesn't outright kill the cells, it just inhibits their growth drastically, as you can see in this case, uh, there is no GFP expression and the culture size is very, very small. Compared to that, if you look at these three on top, the GFP expression is very nice and they're growing much faster and they look much more healthy in color. So anyway, uh, we thought this is a good uh, selection system also to get transgenic cotton plants. And we obtain lots of uh, <clears throat> transgenic lines using this uh, selection, but wanted to make sure that it is a good system. So we compared it with uh, the bar gene and PPT system or the phosphenothricin uh, herbicide or biolophos herbicide, or it goes by the name Liberty in the US. Uh, 
Uh, obviously, it's a much more tight selection out of uh, 25 plants that we uh, generated. All 25 are positive for the for the bar gene. Sorry, this is a mistake here. It should be bar here, not PTXD. But anyway, um, when we uh, looked at the PTXD plants, uh, out of 42 plants that we tested, 41 turned out to be positive. So that tells us that it's a very good selection system as well. Now, <clears throat> we obtained many, many lines and we tested these lines initially just <clears throat> in kind of sand culture. So we grew some plants in, in these <clears throat> uh, cups in, in sand and they were fertilized with hogland solution. The only thing was that uh, in one case, the hogland had phosphite as the source of phosphorus. In the other case, it was phosphate. So here is wild type or non-transgenic plants. When you fertilize with phosphate, they grow nicely as they should. Uh, and here is one of the transgenic lines. So very nice growth in both cases. But if you then uh, provide phosphorus in the form of phosphite, the non-transgenic plants are all stunted. They don't grow very well. And here are transgenic line, and these are growing as nicely as they would on phosphate. Now, you may be wondering what about these three plants? Well, this is T1 generation, so the transgene is segregating, and these are what we call null segregants, and they don't have the gene, so they are growing as poorly as the non-transgenic plants. So this was good. Uh, so based on this uh, result, we thought now we'll do an experiment on real soil. So we got some soil from San Angelo. So one of the uh, limitation of this technology is that the soil has to be low in phosphorus. Uh, so we checked the soil le uh, phosphorus levels. It was about 18 parts per million uh, phosphorus. So it was clay type of soil, 7.8 pH and so on. Uh, anyway, so we planted about six plants uh, in each tray of cotton, uh, but in we also had three rows of um, uh, Palmer amaranth, which was Roundup resistant, uh, <clears throat> uh, and uh, we planted three rows of that. And this picture was taken about uh, four weeks after we started the experiment. As you can see here, when we fertilize with phosphate, the wild type or non-transgenic plants can hardly be seen here in the tray. The, the weed Palmer amaranth is just taking over. Uh, same thing happens if you have a transgenic line, but fertilize with phosphate. But if you fertilize with phosphite, the wild type plants are all stunted and yellowing. And also the weeds are pretty stunted. As opposed to that, if you look at this transgenic line, <clears throat> it's growing nicely, and but the weeds are stunted. So this was a very nice result. And we thought, okay, we'll do one more experiment on a different kind of soil. So we got some soil from an area called Eagle Lake near Houston. Now the phosphorus levels on this soil were even lower. We had about 10 ppm phosphorus. It was a different type of soil. <clears throat> and we thought we will set up a similar experiment uh, that we had done earlier. And so we had six plants of cotton in each tray, and then we put in the uh, 
Palmer Amaranth in there, three rows of that. Um, and about three days after we started this experiment, we started seeing these little bitty grass type of uh, uh, weeds uh, kind of coming up. And anyway, later on it became clear that this soil contained hundreds of seeds uh, per tray of uh, broadleaf signal grass. And we thought, okay, we'll continue with this experiment. So these pictures were taken four weeks after uh, setting up the experiment. And as you can see, uh, the grass weed is growing nicely. So is Palmer amaranth. And you can hardly see the cotton plants in there uh, when you fertilize with phosphate. But if you fertilize with phosphite, uh, the weeds as well as the non-transgenic cotton plants are stunted, but the transgenic line grows quite nicely and the weeds are stunted. So again, a very nice, very promising result. Now, <clears throat> our collaborators in Mexico did very similar experiments in greenhouse and they use computation with brachypodium and morning, morning glory and they saw very similar results. Uh, the, these results have been published and uh, you can uh, <clears throat> read the publication. Uh, so what this, uh, these experiments tell us is that this PTXD phosphide system is uh, quite efficient in selection. It can be an alternate system uh, we can use to select transgenic plants. Uh, uh, so it's an alternate to antibiotic resistance genes or the herbicide resistance gene. And potentially it could be used to control or manage the weeds in the field. Now we, we have been doing some field work with this, but there are a lot of issues we need to sort out first. So we, I don't have any concrete results to share with you today but hopefully in future we'll have something soon. With that, I'll switch to my other uh, <clears throat> um, project. And this was the original project, the very first project that I started working on 25 years ago when I came to Texas A&M, talked to a bunch of cotton, a uh, bunch of uh, people here and they said, well, Texas is a cotton country, you better work on Texas so I, uh, or work on cotton. So I thought, okay, well, how hard could it be? Uh, cotton is a dicot. I work with something uh, like rice, which is at the time was pretty tough. Um, anyway, um, it turned out to be not that easy crop to work with, and uh, it'll become very clear as we go through the next few slides. But anyway, uh, one of the pro problems that jumped out right away in cotton was the issue of gossipol, which is a toxin in the cotton seed. And let me tell you a little bit about that. So as it, is the case with many people and certainly was the case with me, I did not know that cotton plant uh, produces more seed than it produces uh, fiber. <clears throat> uh, so for example, in 2014, uh, globally 26 million tons of fiber was produced. At the same time, 47 million tons of seed was produced. Now cotton seed has about 23% uh, protein what that means is that there is about 10 to 11 million tons of protein locked up in the cotton seed. <clears throat> now, 
uh, if we could use this directly for human nutrition, we could meet uh, basic protein requirements of 500 million people per year. A human being requires about 50 grams of protein per day to survive. And uh, it'll be nice if we could utilize this protein for directly for human nutrition. Uh, now, the reason why we cannot utilize cottonseed for human nutrition is because of the presence of this toxic gossypol, which is a terpenoid. And uh, because of its toxicity, it prevents its use as food and also limits its use as feed. Now, as I said, uh, cotton seed has about 22, 23% protein. It's relatively good quality protein, uh, <clears throat> but uh, its use is hampered uh, uh, for food or feed because of the presence of gossypol in the seed glands. So here is a slice through a cotton seed and you see these dark dots. These are what we call the glands. So gossypol is produced in these glands and stored within these glands. And as I said, gossypol, and this is the structure of gossypol. As I said, gossypol is toxic to non-ruminant animals, including pigs, chickens, humans, uh, obviously, and it damages heart and liver, and there are some other health effects uh, <coughs> also. Uh, also, uh, gossypol tends to bind lysine, so even if you give it to cattle, which are much more tolerant to gossypol, it uh, reduces the nutritional value of the meal because it binds to the lysine. Uh, gossypol is typically removed during the processing of cottonseed oil. So we do uh, get cottonseed oil and we all consume it. And rest of the seed either directly or after extracting oil is fed to the cows and cattle. Uh, these animals, uh, monogastric animals, uh, uh, do not tolerate gossypol <clears throat> very much. So um, now one other thing that uh, I'd like to say is that uh, although we're not throwing away the cotton seed, we're feeding it to the cows, uh, but uh, cows are not the most efficient animals in terms of converting crude protein into edible animal protein. So we call that protein conversion ratio. So for cows, it's 20. So you have to give cow 20 pounds of uh, uh, crude protein to get one pound of beef protein. So the protein conversion ratio for cows is about 20. Uh, compare that with these other monogastric animals, pigs is 5.7, chicken is 4.7, eggs 2.6, and here are some of the fish which we actually are growing more and more in aquaculture. Here is salmon, tilapia. So all these other animals are much more efficient in terms of converting <clears throat> uh, crude protein into animal protein. Now, gossypol toxicity has been known for thousands of years. And uh, in 1954, McMichael, a USDA scientist, discovered <clears throat> this uh, glandless mutant of cotton, which we call Hopi cotton. It was being grown by American Indians of the Hopi tribe in Arizona. 
and that's why the name Hopi cotton. But anyway, this cotton did not have any glands, and so it didn't have any gossipol. Uh, so at that time, there was a great deal of excitement, and so a lot of national, international breeding programs were launched to transfer this trait to commercial varieties. At the same time, a lot of animal nutrition studies were done and they all found the glandless cotton seed to be really good for feeding to other animals, uh, pigs, chickens, shrimp, and so on. And it was considered fit even for human consumption. In fact, Texas A&M got into the act and they took these cotton seed kernels, roasted and salted them, tried it out on people, and actually people like the taste of these cotton seed kernels. So, yeah, so here is uh, what the glandless cotton plant looks like, leaf for steed, there are no glands. Here is a normal cotton plants, uh, leaves and other parts full of glands, so are the seeds. Gossipol values in the seed is about 10,000 parts per million. Now, <clears throat> these uh, terpenoids that are locked up in these glands, uh, they protect the plant from some insect pests. And also <clears throat> there is some research that suggests that uh, they also play a role in protecting uh, the cotton plant from some diseases. Uh, so the glandless cotton was attacked much more heavily by the traditional pests of cotton. Uh, even some of the non-traditional pests that normally do not uh, go anywhere near cotton plant were attacking the glandless cotton. And so largely for that reason, there is no large scale cultivation of glandless cotton anywhere. So this is where uh, I started and I thought, okay, well, uh, what uh, our goal, what should be our goal? And we thought if we can eliminate gossipol from the seed or bring it down to a level, say about below 450 parts per million, um, but leave the uh, rest of the terpenoids intact in the rest of the plant, uh, that'll be a nice goal to achieve. Now, why 450 ppm? FDA considers anything safe even for human consumption if the levels of gossipol are below 450 parts per million. So anyway, that was our target. And, and we uh, knew some of the steps in gossipol production uh, at the time I started. Now, this is one of the key steps in the gossipol biosynthesis. That is conversion of arnesyl diphosphate to delta cadmium. And this step is catalyzed by an enzyme called delta cadmium synthase, and some of the other steps are also known. Uh, one other thing to note here is that uh, the glands in uh, seed kernel, as well as the flower petal, they contain uh, just gossipol, whereas the green parts of the cotton plant contain not just gossipol, but also hemigossipolone and heliocytes. And some of these terpenoids have much higher insecticidal activity compared to even gossipol, but they are all derived from the same uh, basic biosynthetic pathway. So we thought, okay, if we can silence this gene, delta cadmium synthase gene, in a seed-specific manner, we should be able to reduce gossipol in the seed without affecting its levels in other parts of the plant. And that's what we did. And we had to develop a lot of technologies. We had to have an efficient 
transformation system. We isolated a, the delta catenene synthase <coughs> gene from the tetraploid cotton. Uh, we had to have a seed-specific promoter, and we uh, use alpha-globulin promoter and a gene silencing mechanism, which was RNAi. Uh, cotton transformation, we went via the traditional route, uh, tissue culture-based system, but it goes from uh, transformation to getting little bitty plants in the pot could take 10 to 12 months, not an easy process. Uh, and in terms of promoter, we use uh, alpha globulin promoter. As you know, globulins are the uh, major seed storage proteins in cottonseed. And uh, in order to check the activity of this promoter, we hooked up the uh, promoter, which we call alpha globulin promoter or AGP to the reporter gene GUS and transform uh, <clears throat> three different species and I'll, only show you the results from cotton today. So <clears throat> this promoter becomes active about 16 day post synthesis. Here is the embryo, uh, zygotic embryo, and the blue coloration here shows that the promoter is active in this part of the embryo. And as the embryo gets bigger, the activity gets stronger and stronger, and it starts to spread throughout the embryo. By day 25, the promoter is active throughout the embryo. It remains active rest of the uh, embryo maturation. Uh, what about specificity? So we looked at that uh, issue as well. And we found, we looked at various tissues of the transgenic plant and we found that the promoter was active only in the seed and in no other part of the cotton plant. So, so and here is the, uh, <coughs> Here's what, uh, why we thought it's a good promoter. So gossipol production in the embryo starts about day 25, day 26, uh, but the promoter that we were going to use becomes active way before gossipol production starts. So we thought we have a good promoter which we can use. Uh, we utilize the RNAi system, silencing system. We use the, uh, the hairpin system developed by CSIRO in Australia. And we use the agrobacterium to do the transformation. So this is our very first result. Uh, this uh, <clears throat> part of the slide shows gossipol values in individual cotton seeds. So uh, normal gossipol levels are about 10,000 parts per million, and it's about that average is about 10,000 parts per million here, or 10 micrograms per milligram. So, this is in wild type cotton seeds. Uh, here are our original two lines that we uh, trans, uh, obtained line number two and line number 32. As you can see, the gossipol values in many seeds have dropped. Uh, significantly. Now, we also were doing PCR tests on each of these seeds. And remember, these uh, are T1 generation seeds, so the transgene is segregating. So the seeds that had the RNAi are showing low levels of gossipol, and the seeds that did not have the RNAi construct, the null segregants, have normal levels of gossipol. Uh, this is what the gossipol peak looks like on the HPLC chromatogram. 
uh, uh, for a normal cotton seed, but here are some of the RNAi seeds, and in some of them, the, the Gossipol peak is barely visible. We also looked at the transcripts, uh, the delta cadmium synthase transcripts in these two lines. And so again, this time we looked at the embryos at 35 day post antithesis. And, and the embryos that had the RNAi construct show very little or no transcripts uh, in this RT-PCR assay. Same kind of result we got with the northern blot analysis. Again, this is line number two, line number 32. Uh, the transcripts uh, are not uh, <clears throat> detected here in this northern. Uh, the same thing with the enzyme uh, activity analysis. Uh, these are the two lines again, line number two and 32. Very little enzyme activity for delta cadmium synthase. So, so far so good. What happens to the leaf? Well, here are the results from uh, 10 different plants. So again, wild type, line number two, line number 32. Uh, and remember that the green parts of the plant contain not just gossypol, but also hemigossypolone and heliocyte. So we looked at all three types of terpenoids. And here are the results. Uh, we see no reduction in the levels of these terpenoids in the two transgenic lines. What about rest of the cotton plant? Well, so we looked at terminal buds, we looked at uh, floral buds, we looked at the bract tissue, we looked at the flower petal, we looked at the ball rind, and also the root. Again, the red bar here is the wild type, uh, non-transgenic, and the two green bars are the RNAi lines. And as you can see that there is no reduction in the levels of any of these terpenoids, whether it's gossypol, hemigossypolone, or heliocytes. Roots have some additional terpenoids. Uh, and so we see very similar levels in uh, all parts. So what this result shows is that the low seed gossypol trait is completely tissue specific. Uh, we go to the next generation. These are results from T2 seeds of the two lines, and these T2 seeds were obtained from homozygous T1 parent. Uh, and you can see low levels of gossypol in all the seeds. So this uh, trait is stable and is transmitted to the progeny. Uh, based on those results, uh, uh, which uh, were obtained from greenhouse grown plants, we carried out our own field trials in uh, Texas A&M University fields in for three years, 2009, 10, and 11. We're looking for the trait stability. By the way, we call this trait ultra-low gossypol cottonseed or ULGCS for short. So we're looking for the stability of the trait, specificity of the trait, and the fiber and seed yield uh, and quality. So here are the results. Again, the red bar here is non-transgenic COCR 312. And here are the two transgenic lines. And again, you see that the trait is stable under field conditions. Uh, and here are the results from other tissues of those uh, cotton plants. So we looked at the same uh, types of tissue, bract tissue, floral buds, uh, leaves, and so on. And we find that the levels of these terpenoids are very similar in uh, non-transgenic and the RNAi lines. So once we had those results, we thought we have something that 
could have could be extremely useful uh, in terms of meeting our needs for more protein. And so it, this is a project that's worthwhile going through all the pain and suffering of deregulation. So we proved the science in 2006, but since we wanted to go through deregulation, we had to do a lot more work. And so this is the work that was done for the, uh, from 2006 to 2017. So we had to generate hundreds of additional events uh, and they were tested for the desired phenotype. We carried out molecular analysis, did Southern blots, tried to uh, find some single copy insert lines to do insert localization uh, and also did a biochemical analysis on those, inheritance analysis. After that, we had to do uh, agronomic performance analysis. Uh, and this is where we did uh, eight trials in three different states. We actually conducted several trials in uh, North Carolina. Uh, there were some trials done in Mississippi and some in Texas. We got all the data from those trials. We got the seeds and the fiber. The seeds were then sent out uh, uh, to external entities for composition analysis. We did the fiber quality analysis, gathered all the data. We prepared a petition uh, submitted to USDA and also we prepared a dossier which was submitted to FDA, both of them in 2017. We got deregulation. Uh, for one event, we call that TAM 66274 in uh, 2018, and we got FDA uh, okay in uh, 2019. So this is where we are. Uh, so again, the event that got deregulated, we call that TAM 66274. Uh, we, both of them are, and this is deregulated by USDA FIS, FDA approved. The main point here is that the gossipol levels have been reduced from uh, 10,000 parts per million to about 350 parts per million in this particular event. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, it's way below what FDA considers safe and certainly way, way below what FAO, WHO considers safe. Their limit is about 600 ppm. More importantly, uh, the Foliage and floral parts contain normal levels of gossipol for protection against insects. Now, looks like um, you're, uh, one more thing I would like to say, I, I don't, I'm not showing you the result, but one of the issues, uh, especially outside the US is the presence or activity of antibiotic resistance gene, which is what we had. We had the canamycin resistance gene uh, uh, that was used to produce our plants. So we have now uh, made this NPT2 gene non-functional using the CRISPR-Cas9 system. So we already have done that work. Uh, now, what can we do? We can certainly use it, the seed for monogastric animals, or it can even be used directly for human nutrition. Um, now, I'm not going to go into too much detail because we don't have much time, but I just want to say that we actually have now uh, <clears throat> identified the gene responsible for making glands in the cotton plant. 
And this was done using, this is published also, and you can see the, uh, the, the publication. It was published in 2019. Uh, we made use of RNA-seq along with uh, virus-induced gene silencing. Uh, we narrowed down our, um, the number of genes to about three genes. We call them CGF1, 2, and 3. Uh, CGF3 is what turns out to be the real master gene for making the glands. And we confirmed that uh, we also know the nature of the uh, mutations in the Hopi cotton. And in A genome, there is a big transposon stuck in the middle of coding sequence. And in the D genome of the Hopi cotton, there is extensive mutations in the promoter region. But we confirm that the CGF3 gene is the master gland gene by <clears throat> uh, knocking it out through CRISPR-Cas system. So here is normal cotton plant, and this is the knockout plant, very looks very similar to the Hopi cotton mutant. So we now even have the gland gene. One other thing that is possible in future uh, is that if we overexpress this gland gene in green parts, maybe we can uh, increase the, uh, uh, the, the, the levels of terpenoids, so we probably get better protection against insects. But it has to be a very uh, kind of uh, precise promoter that should be driving the CGF3 gene. Uh, and, uh, and the results here just show that when we use 35 as promoter, not a good promoter to drive uh, the uh, a, a transcription factor. Uh, but in, we, we, we saw at least at the tissue culture level, really dark colored tissue almost sometimes look like they were kind of making glands. But anyway, uh, look at these terpenoid levels in these uh, dark colored tissue they're way off chart here. And so that gives us some uh, <clears throat> belief that uh, this can be used even for overexpression in certain tissues. So we can have a cotton plant engineered so that it has much more protection in green parts of the plant, but at the same time, very low gossipol values in the seed. So with that, I just want to acknowledge some people. Uh, these are the people who have worked on the project, off and on both the projects, uh, but I would like to acknowledge mainly Leanne. She's been with me for 22 years. Dave here has been with me for about 10 years, working both of them, working on uh, both the projects actually. And some of my colleagues at Texas A&M and my special thanks to USDA scientist Robert Stepanovic. He's retired now in Lorraine. They helped us with all the terpenoid analysis. Here are our Mexican collaborators and two important people who are at Cotton Incorporated. They funded both these projects and without their help, I could not have done, uh, certainly could not have done gone through deregulation and uh, these are the agencies that have funded both the projects over the years. And with that, I would like to thank you and be happy to answer any questions that you may have. Great, uh, thank you so much. So just a reminder to everyone, if you'd like to ask your question uh, live, so to speak, use the raise hand function um, and I can unmute you so you can ask your question. Um, until I start seeing hands, I'll start to read some of the, the questions in, in the chat. 
Uh, and the first comes from uh, Dr. Stepanova. So she's asking, was the expression of the Neda uh, alpha globin gene examined in the deregulated cotton line? Is it expressed at wild type levels? So there is no silencing of the endogenous gene whose promoter was used to drive the RNAi construct. Uh, really good question. Um, we did not directly do that on the deregulated event, uh, but we have indirect proof. You know, if the if the if there was silencing, we probably would may get much lower protein in those seeds, and we don't see big difference in the levels of protein between transgenic and non-transgenic cotton plant. But we have specifically looked at this issue of silencing of the native gene in our previous work. That's also been published. So in uh, more than 10 years ago, I think uh, we, we published a paper where we utilized the same promoter to increase the level of oleic acid in the cotton seed. And we did that, and there we directly compared the values uh, of the, uh, or we directly looked at the issue of gene silencing, and we didn't find any. Okay, we have a question from uh, Dominic. Uh, so he's asking, is cotton expressing the trait more prone to seed feeding insects like ligus, stink bug, or cotton flea hopper? Uh, certainly without, you know, since that deterrent that is there, which is gossipol. If it's not there, certainly you will see a little more damage to the seed directly, yes. So the seed storage will have to be uh, done in a more, uh, you know, better way uh, for that matter, yes. I'm gonna read a, a, a question from Jason Delborn, but just a note, um, he's gonna have an announcement at the end of colloquium today. So everyone stay online for that. Um, so he's asking, have, oh, hold on, I just got moved a bit. Have Hopi scientists or other experts been involved in this research derived from the Hopi cotton? Are there any agreements or partnerships with the Hopi people regarding the technologies that are being developed? Mm, that's a really good question. Um, no, we have not done that yet. Um, but the Hopi cotton has been around, or at least its presence has been known for more than 60, 70 years now. So I don't, we haven't looked into that to see if the breeders have made any sort of, uh, any kind of arrangements with them. That's a really good question and we, we will certainly look into that. Thank you. Just a reminder, feel free to raise your hand so you don't have to listen to me read these questions. Um, but the next question is, what has been the adaptation of growers to grow the deregulated cotton? <laughs> well, <laughs> that's a good question. I wish I had a good answer. Uh, obviously, um, you know, this is a GMO trait and, uh, and most cotton farmers in the US and for that matter, in, even in some of the developing countries, they bought their seeds from seed companies and these these seeds in most countries now have you know bt gene and some also have roundup ready gene and some other herbicide resistance genes and so it has to be uh, kind of stacked on top of that and we have been 
kind of in discussion with some of these seed companies, but we haven't reached any kind of agreement yet. We haven't given up the hopes yet, but it's, it looks like it's going to take some time. I wish I had an easy answer. The farmers certainly want it. You know, you can see the obvious benefits. Now the seed is much more valuable. You can feed it to the chicken. You can feed it to the fish. It can be used directly for human nutrition. And I didn't have time to show some of the slides, but if you just look at the poultry industry, um, uh, you know, it's... Uh, I take an example of a couple of countries, India and China. I think in India, the chicken production from 1961 to 2017 has gone up by 50-fold and something like 24 or 25-fold in China. So there is a great deal of demand for, for feed for uh, poultry animals as well as uh, aquaculture industry. Aquaculture industry is growing at a rate of 8% a year. Uh, so, so there is certainly there is a need, and cotton seed can uh, easily fulfill some of these needs. And by the way, I think we 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 have done some aquaculture um, feeding studies with our cotton, the deregulated cotton. Uh, one was done on shrimp, and the other one was done on fish, uh, in actually in North Carolina. So both studies found that uh, you know this uh, this cotton seed could be a very useful source of feed for these animals. And the next question is: For effective weed control, would the phosphite gene need to be in other crops grown on cotton farms? Uh, it certainly would help, uh, but you know, obviously. Most farms, you're rotating, you know, one crop after the other. Uh, so it certainly would be helpful. Uh, and it, it will also depend. So I think more important than that is probably the fact that you, um, um, yeah, I mean, that certainly would be the case. Also, there are several other factors that come into play. One would be, the most important would be how quickly the phosphate that you are applying to the soil uh, gets oxidized to phosphate. So, you know, that factor is a major factor in terms of then determining whether you want the other crop to be, to, to have PTXD gene also. So there are a lot of other factors that come into play. So that technology is a little more complicated and it's also limited by the fact that you want to have uh, fields that are low in phosphorus. And as you know that our farmers, and for that matter, farmers in a lot of other countries, they actually overuse fertilizers, including phosphorus. So I'll take another question from chat and then I'll go to the, the live questions. Um, where do you see this technology in the future uh, what does it, or where does it need to reach the market, and how long would it take realistically? Um, so it depends on which technology are you talking about the the phosphite PTXD or the gossipol. Daniela, do you want to clarify that, or we? 
Let me unmute you. The fast fight, I guess. Right. Uh, the, the, that technology still has ways to go. Now we have, we, you know, we are uh, in our group, you know, we, I just started out as something, a just kind of look-see type of thing between my, my lab and the Mexican uh, scientists. And now it's a kind of increased to, we have now weed scientists on board. We have a couple of soil scientists on board. And so we're all, you know, doing our own thing right now. Once we have some things that are a little more clear, then we're going to uh, kind of do some work together. But there are a lot of things need to be sorted out. But going by my experience with the Gossipol work, I think it could be another probably 15 years or so, 10, 15. But, well, at the same time, now that we have some experience with uh, the regulators, maybe it won't take that long. Uh, but you never know. So just, uh, um, Zach, I'll get to your question next, because the next question in the chat, I think, builds on that response. Right. Did the precedent of this cotton deregulation process ease the path in any way for deregulation of future cottons with improved qualities? And what was the approximate cost of the deregulation process as accomplished in the public sector? Ooh. Uh, well, I cannot certainly answer the first question. <clears throat> uh, it, it certainly, um, it will certainly make it easier for the future trades, no matter where they are developed, uh, you know, uh, to go through the process a little bit quicker and a little more, uh, should be a little less painful. Uh, and that's the reason, one of our big reason to kind of write that review, which was published. And I think it's online with the announcement for my talk. Uh, we, we wrote all the details, all the struggles that we had to go through as you know as myself as a scientist and what we did what what worked what did not work and i i hope uh, and mine certainly it was my intention that others will learn from that and will have uh, will have easier time to go through the whole process one thing i would also add is that our experience in dealing with um, the regulators was actually quite good. I'm sure uh, you and others have heard some horror stories from other people saying, oh, you know, uh, these people are just not very helpful at all and you'll just <laughs> be, be kind of crucified there. But our experience has been extremely positive and I know that uh, Tom Wiedegartner is uh, amongst the audience. He was with me every time we went and saw the uh, regulatory people and our experience has been extremely positive. Now we did have a very good regulatory consultant, which was kind of uh, uh, put on board by Cottoning to uh, kind of guide us through this whole process. And his name is Scott Tunnell. I, I, his name was in the acknowledgement. Unfortunately, he's retired now, but uh, he obviously helped us a lot, but there are several others. So uh, my hope is that, yes, our experience will make it easier for others to, um, to go through the same process. 
as far as how much did it cost, um, that's a kind of a little more difficult question. Um, I think certainly, um, so Cotton Inc. came on board. It's very hard to kind of answer that question because Cotton Inc. came on board in 2006 for this particular project, but we had already done a lot of work and proved the science in 2006. So it's very hard to add all these numbers, um, but you know, it's I. But it's certainly not in tens of millions of dollars, which is what you hear if you go to Monsanto and you know Bayer and so on. You hear the number fifty million, hundred million dollars for a single trade. Now, the reason for them uh, quoting you those high numbers is because they're going for deregulation, not just in the US, they're going for deregulation in all the other countries, which we can't afford to do. So ours is limited to the US. So our costs don't reflect what they, they have experienced, but it's certainly not in tens of millions of dollars. Zach, you should be able to unmute yourself and ask your question. Great. Um, Thanks. Uh, I was just wondering, you know, you talked about uh, seed companies uh, having an issue, uh, the issue with trying to get them to incorporate the gossip hall trait into other high value traits and also uh, the deregulation aspects. But uh, what strikes me as being an issue is the potential marketing uh, needed to get gossip hall seed, you know, the gossip hall seed um, used for these, for these new purposes, these new end uses that you've discussed. And so I just wonder, uh, has Cotton Inc. or, or yourself been uh, involved in trying to market this new, essentially new product for, uh, for these new, new end uses? Thanks. Uh, <clears throat> good question. We, uh, I, <clears throat> I don't think uh, the university is certainly not in the business of marketing and this is something new for our university and so you know for a lot of other universities it'll be the same same situation uh i think the same thing in a way kind of applies to cotton ink uh in terms of direct marketing but certainly uh you know their stakeholders which are the cotton farmers they certainly want it and they know all about it i think uh, the cotton farmers certainly know about it I mean, basically, they are the ones who are extremely enthusiastic about this uh, technology and still are. Uh, but it has to kind of go through these seed companies uh, in order for it to really, uh, you know, be kind of uh, distributed as widely as possible. The, the other reason for reluctance on the part of these companies is that, okay, because they are not in just in the US, they are in a lot of other countries. And, you know, we export much of our fiber and even a little bit of our seed as well. So so that's, that's the issue that we have to somehow, come, you know, get over. Okay, I think we have time for one more question. So Eli, I'm gonna ask you to combine yours and Fred's because it looks like you guys have been building on one another. So you should be unmuted to ask a question. Oh, sure. Um, so the question is basically, can you uh, 
guess why you've had a hard time convincing um, a seed company to take on your seed? Uh, and uh, do you think that's the only way to make your seed available to farmers? Yeah, uh, I wish I had an easy answer. That's uh, we're, we haven't. Let me put it this way: we haven't given up yet. I mean, we're still going to try. Uh, we are trying slightly in a different way, uh, but uh, one other way that it may become kind of possible going forward is to try and maybe kind of. Um, collaborate with some of the other maybe poorer countries uh, which are actually desperate for another source of protein and uh, and and see you know how this technology can be adopted by them the farmers are there and once it kind of gets started in some other countries I think uh, they the the companies who are you know active in the U.S. may look at it in a little bit differently in more positive manner. So that's that's uh, so we are trying. We haven't given up on this thing. It's just you know it's 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 not an easy process. Uh, yeah. Okay, so we're just about out of time. So I wanted to just take this opportunity to thank you again for for being with us. You. Um, if people don't know, um, you've been through a lot of heartache and, and down in Texas. And so we really appreciate you still being able to, to be with us today and sharing um, your really interesting research with us. So I just wanted to thank you again on behalf of everyone here at the GES Center and, and the broader NC State uh, community. Well, yes, thank you, Fred, and thank you, the organizers. I appreciate uh, this invitation and enjoy talking to you. If, if any of you have any specific questions, uh, you know, send me an email. I'll be do my best to answer your emails. I'm actually much better at talking than <laughs> typing on my uh, typing on my uh, keyboard. Uh, I still use only two fingers to type. So uh, you have my phone number. I, I'll be happy to talk to any of you. Great, thanks so much. And, and Jason, I don't know, do you have, can you just quickly, Mention the, unless you, you're, you're unmuted. So Jason has a quick announcement before people sign off. Great, thank you, Todd. Um, I just wanted to remind uh, this community that the STS, the Science, Technology and Society Program is hosting our annual Buchdahl Lecture. Um, and we have uh, Dr. Kim Tallbear from the University of Alberta speaking on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. The title of her talk is Indigenous Science and Technology Studies, Governance and Decolonization. Um, and she's a, a true leader in the field of indigenous STS. We're really excited to have her and you can register through the Zoom link in the chat. I just want to acknowledge that our own Patty Mulligan, communications director for the GES Center has helped us uh, set up this webinar and she's done a fantastic job. So hope that you can join us. Thanks, Todd. All right, thank you all everyone. And remember, if you haven't picked up your 3D glasses for next week's uh, colloquium, please do that. Um, or maybe try to make your own and show us your sort of DIY versions might be fun to see as well. So thank you again, everyone, and we'll uh, see you all next week.